Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. And uh, my name is Amit Paul, and I am still in some universe. And uh, again, uh, visited, or I have two guests, Ilva and Alexander. Um, and I mean, for us, it's now been six or seven weeks, I think, since we recorded part one. Uh, and part one was followed by a part two that we didn't feel was quite up to the task. There was there was more potential there that we wanted to uh, give and summarize and put out into the world. So uh, we're doing this now. And the world has changed. And we have changed. And uh, at the same time, there's also a lot of things that are the same. So I don't have a clear starting point for us today. Um, but uh, we are talking about conversation one, and we're talking about conversation two, and we might be talking today about um, some more ways of finding ways into them, and also why, why one would bother, and uh, perhaps set some loose or maybe not so loose—I don't know yet—directions uh, for uh, for this. Uh, framework that we're working working our way into. So welcome to the podcast again, Ilva and Alexander. It's good to have you back. Thank you. So Thank nice you to be so back. much. And I'm just gonna kind of hand over the reins or the space. Um where do we where do we start to continue? <laughs> I have a suggestion. How about we do a, a quick as possible recap of what is conversation one and conversation two, and uh, especially, yeah, why bother doing conversation one? We can dive into there after that. So um, mm, I summarized conversation one last time. So how about if you do it this time, Alexander? Okay, I can try. So our starting point as... um, futurists and as active participants in the conversation about the present and the future and sustainability and transition and the shape of the world and what's going on, et cetera, et cetera, in especially in a European context over the last decade or so. Um, uh, our starting point was an, a growing frustration at the difficulties of the conversations that we were part of to somehow Uh, dare to or be able to step outside of the context in which they took place. Uh, And the context is very much one of a the world such as we have built it, uh, an economic system, social structures, a physical environment, etc., etc. And a few kind of uh, keystone assumptions about uh, that, that are very present in the conversation in the world around us. The assumption that uh, we humans are the crown of creation and we are not only a custodial species, as some um, people describe us as, but we are the keystone, we are the preeminent species. Uh, we can call this an anthropocentric uh, view of the world. Uh, So all of these things were prevalent in conversation one, uh, in the conversation around us. And we were both longing for and drawn to people who were also longing for another kind of conversation. Uh, 
And that's what we called conversation two. Um, now, an important distinction is that we're talking about conversations and not systems uh, status. So it's not world one or system one and system two. It's not really game A and game B. Uh, so it's not, the, it's, not, it's not the state of the system, it's the conversation. Uh, and that's where we think it's, it's useful to talk in terms of there being two conversations. There is conversation one, which is very much inside the context that we're in. And then there's conversation two, which, are, which includes many different threads and many different starting points. Uh, that we assemble under conversation two. Was that okay, Ulva? Yeah, I was hoping for some Bretton Woods. Already? Wow. Okay. No, okay. Well, we can wait. We can do that later. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, <laughs> one thing that we might, uh, just one component that we might want to add, which we went into in, uh, in part one, which again has been extremely important for well, for me, and I, I, I know also for you, Ulva, which is the framework suggested by the Canadian um, well, writer and educator and a psychologist called Paul Shifurka, where he describes something that he calls the uh, ladder of awareness. Um, you want to run through it or should I? I can do it. Yeah. Um, so there's five um, steps on this ladder of awareness. And um, ladder step number one represents basically dead asleep, so not really um, um, thinking that there are any challenges, problems uh, in the world at large. Um, and then um, step number two is um, where you have realized that, that there's one big problem and you focus only on that. And you also get upset when people uh, address other problems. For example, if you're very focused on climate change and and don't really find social cohesion uh, as, as an important problem, uh, for example. And then uh, step three is where you um, understand and, and realize that there are uh, several so-called problems. So there would be climate change, there would be biodiversity, there would be um, social cohesion, there would be um, conflicts, and there would be uh, many more uh, such problems. And uh, and then on step four in this ladder, um, you come to realize that the, all the problems are interconnected and you begin to um, think that this is actually a predicament. And when you are in, in step four of the ladder, you also become a bit introvert and start talking with like-minded people. And, and because once you reach step four, you realize, oh, there is no real simple solution. Um, um, we, it's hard to find... Um, you know, it's hard to wrap one's head around changing all the things that are troubling and worrying. And then on step five, you kind of um, decide that hmm, um, perhaps um, there are other ways. Uh, I don't really know, but I'm going to try. And uh, you either then embark on an inner path of um, um, inner development or in most many of them also do spiritual development. And um, others do the outer path and um, go to permaculture and um, conscious communities and, and so forth. Is there anything you want to add, Alexandra or Amit? No, it's good. 
So, so um, the 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 um, I'd like to con- connect to to um, this ladder. There's also kind of a parallel model um, designed by Donella Meadows, and I think we mentioned it last time. I'm just going to mention it very quickly again because it does have to do with the difference between conversation com- one and conversation two. So, um, uh, conversation one is is more or less um, it's it's on step three. Um, there's an awareness of, of step four and there's kind of a mobility between the two and uh, agenda 2030 would be on step three. Uh, it it's lists a long list of challenges and, um, and uh, um, it does address the fact that they should all be dealt with together because there is some awareness of the, the interconnectedness of these challenges. Um, and, um, and Donella Meadows' model, she, she's, she's got a model called Places to Intervene in a System. And so there's a lever, and um, at the lowest point of the lever is more very operational solutions. So changing small things, um, small behaviors, um, I mean, driving less, etc. cetera. And... Uh, on the very top of the ladder is um, more or less the um, mental paradigm that encompasses and the type of thinking that has created the challenges in the first place. So it's it's even the mental paradigm is even above different because there would be systems change comes a bit lower. It could be several systems. You would intervene in several systems that are interlinked, um, and then you would look at the whole bigger system and a bit higher up. And then even higher than that is looking at what kind of thinking um, has caused, has, has uh, made, made us build this an unsustainable situation. And that would also be conversation two. Um, conversation one would be a bit further down the, the ladder of, of places where to intervene in a system. Hmm. And I'm, I'm curious about when you say thinking, in Meadows terminology, what does that entail? Um, it entails your view of how the world works. So for example, um, uh, one such uh, notion that we have embedded in our culture is that of separation, that we are all separated from each other and we are humans are separated from nature um yeah that, does that answer your question yeah, i think and I, I think also just to even sort of fractally scale it like lift it on the in if we f- flip it and, and look on the inside i mean we have a some idea that is that is that we are, you know, sort of the, the Cartesian split, like between mind and body, that we are yeah. separated in ourselves. We have the mind that is controlling the body or, or um, even in ourselves, we are, um, there is such a, th- I, yeah, what I heard was, was that, that the thinking is maybe slightly wider than just the cognitive processing of like the conscious cognitive processing that's going on, but like the whole, um, yeah thing that's unfolding in us. I don't know if that's that's the right, but it's the mental paradigm. Yeah. Thanks for distinguishing. Yeah, thanks for distinguishing that. Um it kind of that kind of what you just described is uh dichotomy or or like the separation of mind and body, etc. 
um, is that thinking or is thinking a result of the, that um, idea of how the world works? I don't know. And is that, is yeah. that I don't know. Nice. Just a couple of reflections on that. One is that this conversation about how the world works, uh, I find, is not really as alive and lively as it should be, especially in times of transition. Uh, we take so much for granted, and there are so many assumptions, a few of which may be right, but then there are many, many assumptions that uh, that you know, aren't right, but that still form this idea of how the world works. Just to take one very concrete example uh, that I think many of us who have in various ways been involved in the sustainability field, we have the assumption that if the CEO of a large company gets a sustainability epiphany, uh, is told, is taught about how the planetary system works, and is shown ways uh, how to tackle some of these problems, uh, and provided with both a group of experts and even a community of peers uh, to be able to really you know, begin taking steps towards becoming a sustainability leader. If the leader, if the CEO gets that epiphany, of course he will be able to return home to his company and start acting and quite rapidly change the direction of the company. Because our assumption is that the CEO of a company has a lot of power or has all power and can, you know, on his own, and I'm saying his, I should say his or her, but as we all know, when we're talking about big corporate CEOs, uh, it's mainly he, uh, will be able to change directions very rapidly. Uh, that's a that's a very common assumption, and that lies behind a lot of very laudable and beautiful sustainability efforts of education and of peer, you know, creating groups of peers and et cetera, et cetera. But if we just take a moment and challenge that assumption, you know, what agency does the CEO actually have? Um, you know, how can he get his board of directors, his investors, his regulators, et cetera, et cetera, to support him in this effort? And, you know, that you actually quite, quite rapidly, unfortunately, um, come up to, uh, well, you have to face the fact that, well, that's not quite how the world works. The CEO is not an almighty decision maker because, as we see almost every day, a CEO who decides to go a little bit too far in this direction, he will lose his job. The board will replace him with someone who's more malleable. So that's just one example of, uh, of an assumption about how the world works that needs to be talked about. There's an old quote that I came across somewhere, which I like a lot, that says that the way you think the world works determines the way in which you work to change the world. So for all of us and all of you out there who are on a, uh, or see yourselves, see ourselves as change agents trying to impact the system we're in, uh, let's not forget that we sometimes at least need to refresh the conversation about how the world works. Mm. Um, as you rightly pointed out, Amit, um, since we last spoke six, seven weeks ago, uh, the world has changed, we have changed, I have changed, 
Uh, and maybe we should just uh, spend a little bit of time talking about, well, what has changed um, in, in, in our uh, ideas world, in our, not so much the lives in terms of day-to-day -day lives, but in our thinking. Has anything changed or been refined or been, been uh, challenged or so? Ulva, do you want to say a few words about that, and then I can um, I can fill in. I can I can zoom in on something that I've found extremely fulfilling in the past few weeks, and that is that. And I, on the side, I um, I study also at university, and it's a course called. Um, bear with me now because it's a very complicated <laughs> and long name. <laughs> so it is actually exactly what we're talking about. It is so um, pedagogy. So um, the, the art of teaching and learning, I think, uh, and, and uh, for sustainability, for sustainable development, um, using artistic methods with a post-human perspective. And the post-human perspective is basically what we are uh, addressing in a way, because it's one part, a big part of conversation too would, would be post-humanism, because that is, uh, and uh, um, at least there are so many definitions. Chat GPT has a different definition than I do. <laughs> and that's because I use the philosophy definition and I also employ, uh, apply the definition that's used in this particular course. It's at the Linnaeus University. I really recommend this course because it is eye-opening, even though even to people who have been spending a lot of time trying to open their eyes their whole life. Uh, it's fantastic because um, so the posthumanist perspective is basically yeah, well, it's um, saying that we're all entangled. Um, we are, and the world is entangled. Everything has agency, not only only humans and maybe animals, but everything that's in a room. Uh, exist in relationship with everything else and any learning happens in that relational space um, throughout actions and um, um, uh, different sort of, uh, developments and evolutions between the agents in that space. This is very abstract. Um, so this artistic methodologies that we've deployed in this course has um, has enabled, this is a huge enabler, talking about lived experience, because when you create um, um, uh, an art situation, for example, um, uh, writing a poem or, or um, drawing and also doing it in relationship with the world uh, around you, um, you might, if you're lucky, end up in a different state of consciousness and you realize I've, I've dipped my little toe into an, a whole different worldview and it's quite enjoyable. And um, I've also ex been exploring this in uh, within, um, I'm also taking a class in process drama and uh, it's been um, so inspiring. Is, can, can I just to, yeah. to try to, get at what you were just saying and just in, especially in combination with what Alexander was just bringing in with like the, that the way you think would 
the, the way you think the world works determine how you try to change the world. Um, I mean, I can notice it myself. If I write on a piece of paper, if I write on my sort of remarkable tablet, if I write to my computer, those are three very distinctly different ways of writing. Those are three very distinctively different ways of how my mind interacts with the writing. Like it's it really, that, that structure, that object that I'm interacting with really changes uh, how, I, how I see and interact and what I have access to uh, with the world. So that's just like a, a minuscule example of, I think what you were saying, but like with regards to objects having agency and, that, and that's true for everything. Like when I engage with my phone on a specific app, the way that that app is designed has an, it, it gives me certain maneuverability. And um, yeah, we were talking before about, about something around space in a way and like how how wide open space and like sort of stepping outside of of you know room to make big mistakes i think you said alexander before we started recording by the the dixie chicks like that's that's um a lot of what we are interacting with is particularly designed for ends so it becomes we become very instrumental we are we are not as free as we yeah. think as we are um uh, in in relationship to most of the objects that we interact with and most of the things that we have around us. Um, yeah, it's like we we try to we use an agenda and we try to push that agenda on on things around us. And um, if you have a more of a relational perspective, where where um, everyone involved has agency, that you also um, don't you you start start to listen more. You listen more to to the pen in your hand and the paper um, below the pen. And um, it's like there becomes a spaciousness in that listening. And that's and when that spaciousness appears, new perspectives can also arise. Yeah, beautiful. And I think just to, to put a pin from, from my side, like one of those things that are, I think this is why I have, let's put it this way, I take the, responsibility of the designers of this world very seriously because all of these decisions when they are especially when they're made from an unconscious point of view but even the conscious ones are reflections of um, ourselves we're putting ourselves into the world in that way continuously and, and, and so forth and so i think that's a for myself i've been ref, ref, resisting the design profession because of that reason because i'm i i have a baseline where i'm like who am i to Dot, dot, dot. Um. I have the same. That's why I stopped working in communications. Um, because I realized the, the level of influence I was having. And um, perhaps not always with a conscious agenda. But I'd also like to address the fact that um, we, we come to realize our responsibility in such a space. But then we also... Um, come from a place of individualism and we we kind of um, um, we put a lot of weight on on the importance of the individual while we are embedded in um, a kind of thinking and 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 hence generated system that re um, recreates and recreates um, um, these types of behaviors um, Alexander, do you want to pick up 
reflect or, or just continue on the what's changed since since we spoke last yeah, <laughs> yeah. um so i have, i've been um on a different journey uh which has been a journey to mainly f- uh, or which has yeah forced me to face some of the actual changes in the planet, especially in the planetary system around us. Uh, I've been, wasn't really a choice, but I was, I was, I've been exposed to some of the latest updates from the earth system scientists and also the climate scientists. Uh, The IPCC report has come during the time between these two recordings as well. Um, And that reminder, uh, in a way rephrasing what I said earlier around the, you know, the way the world works, uh, just a reminder of, you know, what is the state of the world or the state of the planet in this case. Um, And uh, that's, well, it's, it's a, very, very, very bleak and depressing look, but it's an absolutely essential look um, because we'd like to, in our kind of anthropocentric conversation, we'd like to talk about, uh, well, what's going on among humans and in the conversation about among humans, uh, but we can't forget what's going on, um, you know, in the more than human world. Um, And that is a very bleak report. The scientists are telling us that, uh, you know, we know more and more or they know more and more about, I mean, their measurements are getting better and better. Uh, They are discovering new uh, interdependencies that they maybe could theorize earlier, but haven't quite understood. Little things like, or not little things, but things like, so what is the actual link between the Greenland ice sheet and the Antarctic ice sheet, not the physical link, but in what way do they interact? What's the interaction between the rainforest in the Amazon and the rainforest in Africa, in, um, in the Congo, um, and, and n- numerous other such interconnections? Uh, of course, for every step they take into more knowing, you also take a step into more not knowing or new questions arise with every new answer that you produce. And that's the reality of, um, I guess, of, of science. Uh, and, uh, but just the little bit of progress in what do we know now compared to what we knew, or at least what I was exposed to when we spoke last is, uh, is a fairly, I mean, it's a, it's a radical, it's a radical change. Our friends who are working with the notion of, or the, the, our scientist friends who are really spending a lot of time and effort, uh, looking at the planetary boundaries and actually quantifying them and really going into each and every one of them are now in a position to, at least they say that they've more or less quantified six of the nine planetary boundaries, uh, which they hadn't done, you know, uh or actually all of them are quantified and uh all of the and six of them are 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 
measured in such a way that they can state fairly clearly that we have overshot six out of the nine planetary boundaries. Um, and the reminder of that, it's not a very, it's not a very pleasant reminder, but it is an, I think, an important reminder. Um, and I guess uh, part of the challenge, of course, is that we haven't quite found ways to include the more than human world in our human conversations. Um, it's fairly natural since we lack a common language, uh, but it's also a limiting factor. And we can talk and talk and talk and talk, but uh, the ice keeps melting and the oceans keep getting warmer and the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's, uh, that's been an important reminder for me. Uh, I was able to spend some time with some of the scientists who are really working, you know, a lot on these areas. And uh, it's, it is, it's a sobering but important reminder. Uh, I've also continued tasting, if you like, or digesting or or, or working with uh, an image, a metaphor that we spoke about last time, uh, which comes from uh, Vanessa Andreotti, uh, which is um, which is the notion of or the 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 term of the house that modernity built, um, and she uses that to describe basically what we talked earlier about system one and. In a way, conversation one is the conversation taking place inside the house that modernity built. Uh, and I found, for me personally, it's a very fruitful kind of image to, uh, to walk into, to step into, and to spend time in. It's a house, it's built. And of course, what I was saying earlier about the, the, the state of the planetary systems and as we talked about earlier as well, the state of the human systems that aren't doing very well either shows us that the house that modernity built is uh, it's it's not a it, it's not in good shape. It's even crumbling. It's well, it's maybe burning here and crumbling there and being flooded there, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's the house we're in, and we find it so incredibly difficult for very obvious reasons to see to look at the house from the outside. Uh, in a way to have a to to somehow look at the system we're in from outside the system, and it's not hard to realize how hard that is. Um, uh, but uh, that's been it's been a very um, for me it's been a very fruitful um, fruitful process to think about the uh, about. That. I have two two things. Um, um... The planetary boundaries, as far as I understand, they're linked to the, the tipping points and that basically the tipping points are already in, in motion or have started moving, right? Um, just um, in, ter in case one term is more uh, accessible than the other to some people. I don't know. So that's the one, the one thing. And the second thing is, um, do you think it would be um, useful to describe some some more about what this house that modernity and that modernity, modernity built, what it consists of, Alexander? Um, I, I, I mean, the, the easiest way or one way to describe it is, is really to look at it as the, uh, 
set of subsystems that uh, that we are part of and that surround us. Uh, there is one part of the system has to do with the financial system. Another part has to do with the economic system and the flow of goods and services and materials. A third one has to do with the flow of ideas and the conversation that takes place in this. Um, a fourth uh, has, of course, to do with the, let's call it the philosophical fundament, what we were talking about earlier, about the way we think the world works. Um, so those are some of the systems. And we have chosen to, over the, you know, say 300 years that the House of Modernity built, has been built and refined and reinforced and strengthened and uh, etc. We've chosen to uh, create a number of institutions around many of these uh, subsystems. Uh, and uh, those institutions we are also seeing those institutions uh, crack uh, and we can no longer really believe whether they are as strong as we were taught they were. Um, just what happened also, well, since we spoke last with uh, the uh, turmoil in the financial systems, once again shows us how, uh, how um, existential for some people how existential a threat to the financial system is to the system as a whole i'm struck by that every time there's a banking crisis or something uh, that um, this in a way goes back to the shifurka ladder of awareness that for a number of our leaders in politics and in finance uh, they, I guess, are stuck at the second step because there's one key problem, and that is financial stability. And when something comes up to threaten that, everything else is put aside. Uh, so when there were these crises in Silicon Valley Bank, we were hearing reports how Rishi Sunak, prime minister of the UK, was in the US, and he spent all night on the phone with the World Bank and the IMF and the ECB and the Bank of England. All night, he was there talking and talking about, so what can we do? How can we make sure that when the markets open in Asia on Monday morning, this has to be settled? And uh, we remember that from every <laughs> banking crisis in the past. And our friends in the climate movement or our friends in the, well, you know, regardless of which crisis area you look, they're kind of going, well, wait a second. You know, you, you, you've said at party conferences or at uh, summits that uh, you know, climate is the existential threat of our time. Well, why aren't you spending all night sitting on the phone talking to your peers about that? Or others saying, well, we have a big problem with insecurity or we have a big problem with uh, the um, uh, mental health issue of our young people or we have problems with pandemics or we, well, not pandemics because that was dealt with in the same way. But all these other areas somehow get, as soon as there is a banking crisis, a threat to the stability, the so-called stability of the financial system, everything else is put aside. Um, yeah, and, and building on that, Alexander, so um, mirroring that over to conversation two would be then, um, because in conversation one and in system one, we have equated stability with institutions. And as institutions having the only way of securing stability, and um, 
a com- an important conversation within conversation too is is it possible and in that case how to create stability uh, outside of institutions and without institutions this is a question that i i i don't hear anywhere mm. and i think that considering um uh, with you know with um um, tipping points, moving closer and um, getting more activated um, past 1.5 degrees um, and the subsequent cascading effects that we can't really overlook. Um, um, there would eventually, maybe, I, nobody can tell exactly when, but eventually we're going to face situations where institutions, um, we cannot rely on institutions and might be very long, far ahead in the future. We don't know. It could also be very soon. Um, so um, the importance of starting this discussion, um, um, I find, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very important that we have this discussion now. Mm. There is a, um, the BBC made, I think it was last year, a documentary film about the uh, period between 1985 and 1995 in the Soviet Union. Um, And they basically took all the archive footage that their journalists had assembled, their their reporters had assembled from the Soviet Union during that period. Everything from sports footage to footage from the spaceships to interviews. I mean, literally everything. And then they asked one of their best, best, best documentary Um, editors, really. It's more than a filmmaker. It's an editor. Just to do something about with all that material. And it resulted in, I think, a seven-part documentary series called Trauma Zone, uh, which is actually available on YouTube if you look at Trauma Zone. And there is no voiceover. There is no comment. It's just a trip, a journey through these years of the Soviet Union. And Uh, that was a year of systems collapse. That was a year of institutional crumblings. Not a year, but a period of institutions just crumbling. Uh, And seeing that, and, you know, I was not only born, but I was, you know, I was in my 20s when this was happening. So I have memories of this, but revisiting that 30 years later and just asking the, I know it's a rhetorical question, but just forcing myself to just think for a second about, so, you know, how would a similar systems collapse look like in my part of the world? I'm not saying that, you know, Sweden or the EU 2023 is as frail as the Soviet Union turned out to be in 1989, but just let's, let's just play with that idea and then think about the process of basically crumbling uh, and of course, the the horrendous human impact uh, that this had on you know tens and hundreds of millions of people, uh, and a trauma that, as we know, uh, and as our friends, uh, and as the people dying in uh, Ukraine can see now, that trauma, of course, uh, is still very, very much uh, present and um, you know influencing 
the cur current events. But just thinking about that kind of uh, institutional collapse uh, as something that is, you know, whether it's probable or not isn't really the question, but what could it look like um, is, I think, a worthwhile, uh, worthwhile thing. In a way, it is a parallel. If the planetary boundaries, as you say, Ulva, a lot of the work in the planetary boundaries were uh, body of work has to do with tipping points and interdependencies. What happens if we call cross that threshold there? What does that lead to there, et cetera, et cetera? Doing a little bit the same kind of exercise, not for the planetary systems, but for the, let's call them the civilizationary systems, the systems of or, or the different parts of the human system. Uh, the one thing is the one thing we know is that we can't map this exactly. Uh, and there's a lot of fear, a lot of opportunity. Uh, every major um, big step in one of these areas ripples through the rest of the system. We're seeing that right now with all the discussion around artificial intelligence and large language models and chat GTP and GPT-4, which is, which is amazing stuff. I mean, it's deeply frightening and deeply amazing. Uh, and I really encourage everyone not so much to read about it, but just play, play around with it to see what this uh, is. Uh, and that's something that happens in a little part of a subsystem that we call technology. Uh, but just seeing how that ripples through the system is, in a way, an equivalent to the melting glaciers of the Alps and thinking about, so what does that mean for the rest of the planet and the rest of the system? Yeah. I would like to rectify something I said before, that nobody's having the conversation if whether we can have stability without institutions. Because um, of course people are talking about that, and I even know, I even know movements that are um, active in making sure that there will never be any cement cementing of institutions. For example, the the, the Nordic Burner community, the Borderland community, and uh, um, has active discussions on how to make sure that we don't create and build institutions, but that we are um, uh, capable of. Uh, organizing large events and also um, um, managing land um, without being creating institutions. And I think it's beautiful. You also mentioned the Occupy movement, uh, Alexander. And um, in one way, Telbay was also. Um, yeah, I think, I think the, the just reflecting a little bit about how, about, and, you know, spending town, spending time with, people who are trying to impact, uh, to, to affect change and impact the system, but aren't doing it by creating new institutions. And in some cases, as you say, very, very consciously making sure that they don't become institutionalized. And again, revisiting Occupy Wall Street, it's been a while, but, uh, and of course, if you talk about it within the context of system of conversation one, uh, the lo logical solution is, well, that was a massive failure. There were no leaders. There was, it didn't lead to anything. There weren't any proposals, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at it from another perspective, again, very much inspired by uh, Donella Meadows and places to intervene in the system, uh, just, you know, um, illustrating a change of paradigm uh, and introducing new language, new words, things like like that that is something that the occupy movement uh, was extremely um successful at 
Um, I was yeah. reminded of a little uh, quote from uh, one of our uh, sources of inspiration, uh, Tyson Yunkaporta from uh, from uh, the Appalachian clan in Afro in uh, Australia, uh, who's both you know book and work and voice uh, has been extremely helpful for uh, me and Ulva and me, and I'm sure many of I I know Amit you refer to him and many others uh, do that as well. Uh, he he posed a uh, challenging question in uh, in a dialogue that he had some time ago, and the, the question was, um, so what can we do to leave something useful behind for the people that are coming next? And uh, if it's okay, I'll quote it. It's not long, it's just a few sentences, but he says something uh, which relates very much to what we've been talking about. Uh, he talks about, he says the following, there's no infrastructure we can leave them that won't crumble. There are no physical tools. There are no technologies that aren't just temporary. But the thing that lasts forever is story. So if we can leave behind some intergenerational wisdom that contains fragments of what we understand about what it is to be human and to be a custodial species, and most importantly, leave some cautionary tales about the characters and the events and the phenomena and the, and the complex contexts that arose when the foundational narrative was wrong, i.e. today inside the house that modernity built, uh, and we continue to show what the events that produced these were and how you can avoid them in the future, then we can leave behind things that will stand the test of time and that will still be around if we do it right in 10,000 or 20,000 years. And I thought that just that notion of, um, in a way, that notion of heritage, uh, of ancestry, of, uh, again, of custody, what can we leave behind that is useful for people that are coming next? And seen through that lens, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that do not pass the test. Um, um, I have like a rising tension in me around, so I'm wondering if it's like there are certain th ways to misunderstand some of what we're talking about now, um, and maybe I am to some degree doing that, or or so I'll I'll please I'll point to some things that I'm so one one of the things that I'm thinking of is like it is this so I'm thinking about both of the the meta modern lens of like uh, basically saying that we are we're living in a specific world. We have, we've been focused very much on deconstructing and putting things into pieces. Uh, and, and we have not sort of generated a lot of things and, and, and created a lot of things and um, for, for a while, uh, which is partly true and partly untrue. But it, like from a philosophical po point of view, you could say that postmodernity had a lot to do with like breaking things apart and looking at uh, and criticizing and 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 uh, maybe destabilizing some of the more um so some of the larger narratives that are there and um and then there's this other movement which is the meta modern which is about sort of putting things together and then we're moving towards something more integrative like more more synthesis like that we want to to weave things back together again um 
So I just wanted to to point to that. And then there was something around the, these institutions, like with the burner movement, um, for instance, where I'm, you know, so so from from the outside, what I'm sensing sometimes there is that it is it becomes stiff and dogmatic in a different way. So one does not want to create institutions, however, in 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 uh, in this dogmatic resistance to against institutions. Um, that becomes in itself like a given uh, that might or might not be constructive. Um, and so I'm currently also reading some some integral stuff uh, by a guy called Tom Murray. And uh, he's talking about these uh, person perspectives. So like basically developmental levels, you could map them onto Keegan, you can map them onto different things, but they're talking about first, second, third, fourth, fifth order of personal uh, uh, person perspectives and a, a word that seems to come in nicely and I'm misusing it sort of half intentionally now, but it's this idea of the, the construct aware, which is, which appears somewhere around fourth and fifth person perspective in the integral, in, in the way that they've looked at that. But I'm thinking, you know, very concretely construct aware of the house that modernity built, um, that there's something around like kind of how the walls went up and what um, what it looks like, what it really looks like. But, but when you start becoming aware of what the construction looks like and what are the pillars, what are the materials that have gone into making this thing stand um, or, or not stand or, or make, now making it crumble, then that's a, that's a useful lens, I think, of, of taking in what he's pointing to in these sort of, if you start moving up beyond sort of just the awareness of it, then um, there are all these this language around sort of living the questions or, or like, what are the questions that, so I think it's a really fruitful question to ask is like, what do we, like you were saying now, like, what can we leave behind that's useful for the people that follow? Um, and then for me, I, of course, like story, sure, absolutely. And especially from, from Tyson's perspective, I can understand uh, that that is, that is a useful component of it. Is it the only useful thing um, probably not. Like there, there's there's a, a range of things that we could leave, but just looking at the world or looking at however you're engaging with the world through that question of what would I leave behind, you know, either in like Joanna Macy says, like whatever it is, like four generations or five generations, two hundred years in in the future, mm-hmm. uh, that that exercise that she does, mm-hmm. sort of back projecting, having a conversation with an ancestor that, that comes three or four or five generations afterwards, or if it's the, the sort of the Appalachian can in indigenous perspective of like 10,000 years in another climatological era, in another sort of mythical context and historical context. Um, I think there are sort of in a way like perennial questions, but there aren't perennial answers in a lot of these things. And like the, 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 exploration of the world and the house that modernity built or like wherever, whichever construct that we happen to be in at the moment, um, through those questions and really sitting with those questions is a, is a worthwhile endeavor. So it's just, I don't know, I guess my tension was around the, when, when we start lifting up examples, because I, I think that we all mean them as examples. Uh, and like experimentations that are fruitful now, those are responses to the current time that we live in and the current environment that we live in. They are not sort of seen as as answers for for like a longer uh, time perspective or something like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the danger of examples because we are we are so tainted by uh, the, the mode of thinking that we're embedded in as well. And uh, 
So I agree. Um, yeah, there could be, for example, um, the, the the borderland community and the reaction towards institutions and is that the mind space that we want to be in, for example. And then and then the IDG, the Inner Development Goals, for example, that's another um, um, I would say. Um, question mark around and uh, uh, how much does it solve because uh, it um, the inner development goals they point out a hugely important issue the fact that we need to work uh, on our inner beings uh, and understand and, and relate to our inner beings interconnectedly um, in order to move forward however if it's in a framework that uh, looks like a checklist, then maybe it's a nice stepping stone towards something uh, more holistic. Yeah, but it's uh, hugely important at this point, um, if you understand yeah, what I yeah. mean. And even so, but and and then like to to on the on the dangerous side, so to say, I saw some some um, paper go out from the World Economic Forum around why we need to have skills based education, and so it's like moving from you know, like actual information, knowledge to to skills, and and then I was and they have like a very similar framework to the inner development goals and so forth, and and yet somehow sort of reading that paper, it seems to me that they're completely missing the point because um, to me it's like how do you how do you I don't know how do you have awareness or like the the con like how do you how do we start talking about constructions and like these these givens and these like how do we start looking and, and paying attention like. I wish I don't know what to call it, but like awareness-based education rather than, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's difficult because it's it's a, it's it so much reeks um, system one in a way where when it you put it, things into boxes and suddenly it, it loses all its um, energy and all its um, in in inert agency and and. Um, I'm, I'm looking for the word in Swedish, is, which is uh, lust. And it's not the same as lust in English, but it's kind of a, a passion desire, and a right. life force. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 And this is also could, maybe, could, could also be um, a segue into uh, approaching conversation too from another perspective, which would be, um, so we've so far covered um, the push factors, why it's um, for threatening reasons important to have conversation too but there's also a pull um, factor uh, in there and and uh, having if if one has um, had experiences personal experiences of other ways of being human and understanding and or seeing a glimpse of that we can do and be so much more we can have so much more life force within us and um that can be a very strong pull factor so for me that was and um okay and then returning again to to burning man and, and also while also being very mindful of the fact that um it's not like the end solution but uh it's a context um a cultural context that's evolved over years where um people uh many people experience another way of being human because we've kind of stripped the context of some of the fundamentals that encompass uh the current system the one and and, and also uh, what leads us into con con the conversation one and and kind of getting a glimpse of nicer um 
a glimpse, yeah, an experience of the true joy of being human in another context. And that can have a tremendous pull. I think also this is a reason why the burner movement has been growing so much, uh, even though I mean, um, there's a lot to say about that. But let's not get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. yeah and, and just to, I, it's very good that you make that segue uh, and the distinction between push and pull. And in a way, just going back to the house that modernity built, what uh, one way of looking at this is to think about, so what are the forces that are pushing us out of the house that modernity built? And on the other hand, what are the forces that are pulling us out or that are attracting us out of the house? One is very fear-driven and very, uh, very, very scary. And as I described early, ev earlier, every little... Yeah, reminder of the state of the planetary systems is very depressing. Um, but then there is this pull aspect, and uh, that's a space that I think is really worth spending, or a thought that's really worth pulling at and uh, spending time in conversations about that and forcing oneself to 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 ex to be exposed to um, what. Uh, Charles Eisenstein, another important inspira inspirational voice, says he has a book with the title The More Beautiful World Our Heart Knows Is Possible. The More Beautiful World Our Heart Knows Is Possible. Um, and it's a, that's a very abstract and maybe a little fluffy thing, but I tend to see that just in the you know, in the in the voice and the eyes and the body language of some people who have taken steps out of their uh, lives in system one, uh, and who have, in different ways, maybe moved to an intentional community, just you know, moved outside of the city, or even haven't moved moved physically, but have taken steps to change their lives and. Just seeing the, um, yeah, just hearing the, the, in a way, the, hearing the spring in their steps and seeing the light in their eyes is, uh, is a, I think, increasingly a pull factor uh, for, um, for a number of people. And uh, Amit, you mentioned Joanna Macy, and she speaks so eloquently and so beautifully about this and brings so much, in a way, joyful wisdom or wis wise uh wise joy about that when she talks about you know what an incredible time to be alive to be able to see this to see this new world being born this new world emerging another pull factor is is um um spiritual development um, and having a, a practice of, of meditation or, or any kind of spaciousness when you where you empty your mind of thinking, and um, it could also be ecstatic practices like dancing and, and so forth. But if you if you can if you do that on a regular basis and quite often, it it changes you. I can also see that in a lot of people. I started doing yoga in two thousand and one, uh, which was when yoga was quite uh, perceived as pretty odd. And uh, uh, and uh, and I kept doing it, and I noticed 
after a few years that it's I started to change and I was I was doing that and so this this there was this whole big yoga movement that carries within itself um, a pull towards something else I think I think it's um when when uh, when I, Charles Eisenstein said our heart knows it's it's when we come into situations more and more often and spend time with more people or in, in, in environments uh, that puts us in touch with what the heart wants and what the heart knows is possible. Um, the, the longing and the desire for something, you don't really know what it is, mm. but you know there's something um, more meaningful out there. And we're living in a meaning crisis right now. And one expression of that is the, the mental health um, crisis. I've been working with SMO, um, which is the National Organization for Social and Mental Health, and helping them with future um, uh, report and, and strategy. And uh, during that work, I had a, the opportunity to speak to some um, of the people who are most in the know regarding mental health in Sweden today. One of them who passed away, Ingmar Wieselgren. And um, um, during those interviews with those people, um, uh, it came very clear that the awareness of the fact that there's a, the lack of meaning is a big part of this mental health crisis. And another another conclusion that came out of that was um, was actually some fundamental systems critique, saying that we've created um, a situation where people are not feeling good. Um, and the more you feel terrible, the more, the deeper you you sink, um, the the more the desire grows. So it's kind of a it's a nice um, uh, mechanism. Uh, I don't know if that word is the appropriate one right now, but <laughs> but feeling terrible, feeling awful, makes your desire to feel to feel good and to evolve spiritually or consciously uh, so much stronger. And so there is also, a, I, I think, a silent um, but also very large movement towards a greater consciousness and, and the longing for something more meaningful and perhaps. Um, even though very few people are today in conversation too, you know, I'm hoping that uh, soon many more will be. Mm. Mm. And I think also just those stories, sorry, that, that you were talking about before, Alexander, that's where they come in probably to, to point to something different and to point to um, something. I mean, because at least from my experience as well, it's a lot of the work or the the moves, the meaningful moves into this space has been around different ways of paying attention. Um, so cultivating my attention has been absolutely crucial for me to start being able to see and hold an experience or a thought uh, alive long enough for me to really sense into it, to be able to, be able to sink into it. And uh, I'll, I'll bring this in too as well. I know I interrupted you, Alexander, I'm sorry, but there's this view that's been with me now. I, I feel like the, the, a lot of the way that I'm approaching sort of my own spiritual and mental and whatever development right now is like I'm, I'm imagining myself as a lump of slime on chicken wire and then like I'm sinking through that. So it's like 
there is like real use in actually becoming compartmentalized and like being boxed in. And then as I'm being boxed in and like sinking through this thing, you know, the, the slime sticks a little bit. So it's like it it's folding and unfolding and infolding itself like in different ways. And then I join my join back together on the other end. And, and then at some point it lets go of the slime and I fall down on another level of chicken wire. And then it just repeats and it starts again. Um, but that level of um, the willingness to be reorganized and reoriented and, and the dismemberment is, is a thing. thing. Yeah. And also yeah. the willingness to look at what's, yeah. what's also here, what's already here because the slime is, it's the same, you know, it's like, it's this, the, this complexity thing about the adjacent possible. I, I really love that mm -hmm. because it's like with the same components, with the same stuff, what other story could you make? Like, you know, there's an infinite amount of stories that you could make with the parts that we have here. So what, what stories are here? Which ones are we living? Um, is there, sorry, Alexander, what were you, where were you headed? Yeah, I, um, a lot of our conversation and a lot of, well, the conversation around these issues, um, has to do with the kind of personal aspiration of people, of us wanting to find ways to both think ourselves out of the system and maybe even step out. Uh, uh, Ilva, in the last recording, you mentioned The Walkaways, the book by uh, Cory Doctorow, and uh, that there is that, um, there is that urge there, that kind of pull pressure or pull factor. But there are examples in history where the same kind of, not the same process, but, but conditions for that kind of a move are actually helped by the decisions of wise, you know, leaders, political leaders. Uh, and there's one such example that I often go back to, one such historical case that I go back to. Uh, which uh, is around the creation of, well, basically the modern post-war Western economy, uh, which uh, global economy, uh, which has an enormous uh, amount of debt in a way, or thankfulness to the work done at uh, Bretton Woods in the Bretton Woods Conference, 1941. I should preface this story by you know, warning that, yes, it's a very kind of Western hero-worshipping uh, story where the wise, there is a wise leader that guides the flock. Uh, a male wise leader. A male white such leader, because the leader in question is Franklin Roosevelt. Now, he was in a wheelchair, so that is a uh, but the story goes that, uh, well, as we remember from our history lessons, on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. And this was quite a surprise, either a complete surprise or mm, still a surprise. Uh, and of course, as the commander in chief of the American army, Franklin Roosevelt spent most of the day of the 7th of December in meetings with his generals to decide, okay, so how do we mobilize? And then with the generals of industry to uh, tell the factories, so, you know, you basically need to stop producing cars and start producing tanks and fighter, fighter planes and all of that. And you have just a few weeks to do this. 
uh, and other meetings around very much the crisis management of this sudden, uh, sudden crisis. But then the story goes towards the end of the day, he called upon a few, uh, a handful of young economists and young policy experts. And he said to them something along the lines of, okay, so today I've met with our generals and our ministers of industry and the cabinet and all of that to talk about how we win the war. But there's another task. There's the task of already now starting to think about the world when we have won the war. What should that world look like? So I would like to task you guys. Uh, I think they were, again, mainly guys, but they were young uh, and they were given free hands to think about the conversation around the world that we will want to build once we have won the world, once we have won the war. And they started with a blank sheet of paper and they fairly rapidly said that one of the most important things we'll need is an economic regime, is a monetary financial system, uh, a monetary system that will work. So let's spend some time thinking that through. And again, it took three years for them to do that. And then in the summer of 1944, when the, one war, the war was almost won, uh, they convened a large conference of about 300 leaders uh, in the little town of Bretton Woods in North in uh, Vermont or New Hampshire in, in in the U.S. And there they decided on the blueprint, on the basically on the on the on the basic structure of uh, the institutional structure, if you like, of the um, of the of the world economy, and that survived for a number of decades, and at least if you look at it from a human-centric point of view, it served humanity really quite well. Um, but uh, the visionary nature and the wisdom of a leader saying that even in this moment, we do need to spend a little bit of time to use our world words, uh, most of us will be very, very, very busy in conversation one. But we need some people out there thinking about conversation to. So I like that story because it's, it's actually a more uh, kind of real world and more, um, yeah, more anchored way of looking at the, uh, at the story compared to uh, others where it tends to become very, um, in a way, very beautiful. And, uh, but uh, for some people who may be new to these concepts, might feel a little too distant from the nitty-gritty reality of, of, of the world. Yes, <clears throat> and perhaps uh, ending up in uh, saving the world from World War III. Um, and, and, um, and in our situation, uh, we might want to lean towards saying that our challenges are so many more and so much bigger. But um, it, rather think that our challenge is a little bit different now. Um, because where we now need to, to take step out of our own thinking uh, or worldview and see uh, what we can, who we can be, and and how to be human in um, if we would operate in a fundamentally different way. Mm. It's hugely abstract and and difficult, but we we like to talk about uh, what we call liminal skills. So. Um, being uh, used to being in a liminality, so uh, the in-between situation, 
where you're you're not in one stability or another, but you're in in between stability. And um, um, what type of um, what methods, what type of thinking, what situations, what type of conversations, uh, and what even personal traits are actually important in this. Openness, for example, is one personality uh, trait that's quite important in, uh, in, in the embarking on, on conversation one and, and the exploration of aspects of possible system one, two, three, four, five, sixty-six um, that might come out. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm curious about, because I think we should start rounding off as well. And I wonder sort of what is, what is a good punchline for, for this. I mean, I don't, not, not so much a punchline. I guess that, that's not the right, right way to say it, but like what's a good sort of something to leave with. And I'm, I, I, I'm resisting sort of the five things to do or, or like, you know, it's like Nora Betson says, I think the, the you can't ask, uh, what should we do? Um, the right question to ask is how can we find a way, um, which I really like. And so I'm wondering if, actually one thing that I wanted to just, because we're talking about the importance of stories and, and the importance of being able to see something different. And in a way now we've spent a lot of time in, in both in the fear uh, corner, I think of, of, for this conversation, like we've, that, that might be at least for, in my system, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of those surges still, like I'm, I'm still have I'm managing myself in that way of like the discomfort of really looking at um, the severity of, of where we are. Um, and I'm also wondering about, There's something around. There's something around sort of the middle, the forgotten middle. I think Tim Morton talks about the hidden middle, or like the 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 thing that's here right now. Um, and I'm. I've had this. I had this dialogue experiment, uh, or a, a number of dialogue experiments. I really like dialogue as a way of of. Um, discovering things and also discovering gaps in your own thinking because there are ways that when you really face each other and look at one another and does that you know first looking at the center looking at each other and then there's a way of, of really looking into each other's backpacks uh, because some of the stuff that's in, in your backpacks are very easy for me to see because I'm, I'm standing and looking right at them in a way and then I can lift and look a little bit beyond as well but it's there's something there in in terms of care uh, that we could do for one another. And I don't know how to weave this together, but that, that is one part. Uh, another part that I'm curious about is that, or, or this in this sort of construct aware, if we talk about that and, and bring it back to the integral folks, like what they're saying is that as you ascend through in their view, their, their ladder, <laughs> which I'm a little bit resistance to, but as you, mm -hmm. as you move up, then you, what comes available to you are, um, verbs, so things like compassion, care, um, and, and curiosity, uh, not about something, but just as they are, as like as states or as like as process that is continuously ongoing and unfolding. Um, so I just wanted to to say that as well that whatever we're gesturing towards, maybe in in this conversation, is again 
it's not the solution. So like you were saying, like the, the danger of examples, this is just sort of saying that it's possible. It was possible once and it's possible again, and it's already there and it's already happening. And a lot of these things, but like we do have to look at the at the construct. So maybe I, I would propose that what if we, we, we've mentioned a couple of assumptions that are really salient in the house that modernity built, which is sort of the top-down assumption to some degree that somebody's going to come and say, this is how we're going to do. The speed assumption, that it has to be really fast. Um, maybe the scale and the growth, we haven't talked so much about those, but they're, they're there. It's like any solution, if it can't scale, then it's deemed immediately useless. And then you juxtapose that with like the localization movement and the, like Helena Norberg Hodge and Christian Wall and like Joe Brewer and all those people that are, you know, looking at um, very much sort of bioregional, very contextual sort of down in the ground, like extremely sort of uh, hands-on solutions for, for particular places where they can actually define solutions. And then, uh, but w- w- is that a general generative way to, to try to move out of this? Like to, to look at a few more assumptions and then some final remarks, and then we close. Or is there something else that came up now when I was speaking? Rambling. No, I, I have. If the, okay, I, I, there's a way of actually tying that together, uh, tying together the assumption about how things work inside the house and something that is needed for us to move forward. Uh, and that is that another assumption in the house that modernity built is that problems are solved by the experts uh, and that we've divided up both the space of possibilities and the space of problems and basically everything into different boxes. And then we have conversations inside the boxes uh, and those conversations lead to a better definition of the problems and in some cases solutions, again, inside the boxes. Now, what is not very common inside the house that modernity built and what is necessary going forward are conversations that are completely, you know, cross-disciplinary, that are multi-stakeholder, that go across uh, boxes, across bubbles. Nora Bateson uses the word transcontextual. I like that because it's it's much more than multi-stakeholder and it's much more than than uh, cross-disciplinary. So uh, transcontextual meetings and conversations. And of course, ideally, those conversations need to be not only between us humans, but also conversations with the trees and with the whales and with the melting ices and... Uh, Etc. Etc. Because uh, again, if we just think that we can sit down and solve the problems only among us humans, uh, we are unfortunately missing part of the problem because uh, that's not going to lead uh, lead forward, lead us forward. And again, this is nothing new. I mean, just about every single indigenous culture has a mechanism for conversations uh, and. So in a way, uh, I think Nelson Mandela said once that uh, the best weapon is to sit down and talk. Uh, And another way of phrasing that is, well, what humans have done since pre-human times almost is when you you have a problem, you Mm. sit down and talk about it. Uh, and that is, I think, at least that's, uh, that's, well, that's the, the, the passion of my life and the 
task I've set myself is to find ways to convene more and more and more of those conversations to make them as multidisciplinary, as cross-discipline, as, uh, well, a multi-stakeholder and cross-disciplinary and trans-contextual as, pos as possible. And find, you know, find the, 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 the approaches, the methods, the models, the, the tools, the et cetera, for making those conversations fruitful. Can I just underline two uh, things? And if that is conversation, if those are conversation two, in some cases they are, or at least they have the potential of being that. Whereas a conversation between experts uh, in a very uh, single stakeholder, single disciplinary and single context will have no chance of bringing us forward. I think I'll Beautiful. end with that. And what I heard you speak to is like the translingual almost. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. there are different ways of. Yeah. And actually that brings us, there is a, there is, there are some of my friends in the tech field working with AI and others say that we're actually this close to finding ways to communicate across species. Uh, and communicate really across the species because uh, there are translators, if you like. Of course, you know, real-time voice translation from language to language, that we already have. I mean, that's, it's in the labs, at least. It's not in Zoom quite yet, but it's getting there. So, you know, very soon the, the, that obstacle will at least, it won't be removed completely, but it will be, we will find ways to come over. And, you know, just other uh, languages as well, like yeah. with what Ilva was bringing in earlier, would like to dance and like those types of experiential modes. And then just another, what I, for, sorry, just what I heard you say as well was to underline another uh, assumption that modernity lives on is that problems are solved. I think that's a, a, it's a, it's a big one. Problems are solved as an assumption. Sorry, Elva, I've been cutting you off. Yeah, I've, I've been waiting <laughs> for a while because <laughs> the thing is, um, I also, uh, because of uh, where we are right now in this conversation, um, there's much more to say. However, the one thing that right now uh, wants to be said is uh, the importance of all also uh, going beyond, beyond words and to stop talking and to start sensing, to start perceiving, to start imagining, and start to open up. So even though there are technical ways to, to listen to plants, um, there are practices and cultures that we could, might learn much more from uh, where there's already a communication going on with the whole world around them. Perhaps we can learn something and listen more to, to them as well. Uh, I think silence is a very important component in this. Do you have any other sort of assumptions or closing words or, or um, um, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, um, I, I find I kind of, um, my, my reaction just went straight into the, the desire and the longing for a silence. And I think that's where I'm going to stop.